by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's recent trip to Asia and what that will mean for China and Ukraine and so on. Also going to be talking about uh, uh, issues of wheat inside India and how that could impact the country both inside and out. And also going to be discussing the relationship between Elon Musk and uh, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, a funny thing happened at my cousin's wedding this weekend. Congratulations, Mr. Nelson LeBron and Mrs. Trisha LeBron. And welcome to the family, all our new relations on the LeBron side. They are lovely people who know how to party. And that's our kind of folks for sure. But the funny thing that happened was that I found out that my Uncle Alfred, my favorite uncle, I'm not even going to try to hide it, listens to the show regularly up in Detroit. I cannot tell you how tickled I am, not only because Alfred was one of my role models always after my mom, my family. See, we were poor folks, but I watched how my folks helped him through college, not having a lot of money, but everybody doing what they could to help him get through. I remember my mom buying pants from the thrift store and letting the hymns out for him. When he would come home on break, he'd sometimes come with his fraternity brothers and my mom would welcome them like family. Then when he graduated, I trot along with him to fraternity conventions, and I wanted to be like my mom and my Uncle Alfred and my Aunt Rhonda, who is deaf and graduated with an associate's degree in accounting, married, raised three amazing girls, and just married off the second one this past Saturday, or rather, the first. My family is why I never had to look to celebrities for role models. My people are kind of dope, I always thought. So imagine my surprise and honest-to-God joy when I found out that my Uncle Alfred listens to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik just to hear me talk my stuff every day. And if he listens, I bet you his wife, my Aunt Toya, listens too. And man, when he said he was proud of me, you can't tell me nothing now. And then as we're waiting for the wedding to get started, because, you know, weddings and funerals never start on time, other family members asked about my travels and wanted to know what Venezuela and Cuba are really like, where I'm going next, and what is really going on with this war in Ukraine. And I share all of this with you because I want you to know that I do what I'm always telling you to do on this show. Start your organizing with your family and your friends. I don't tell people to do things that I don't do myself. So, yes, I talk about these issues with my family, too. Not all the time, but my folks know that if they suspect that there's something they aren't being told in corporate media about something, anything, they know. Ask me. Not because I'm on the radio, but because I'm an anti-imperialist organizer and they know I walk the talk. They probably wish I wouldn't talk about it so much, but I do anyway because that's just who I am. And it's just icing on the cake that my favorite uncle listens to me every day. So thank you, Alfred and Toya. I love y'all and the youngin' to pieces. While I was at my cousin's wedding correcting the record on Ukraine, Joseph Biden was in Japan meeting with the Japanese prime minister 
Fumio Kishida to announce the new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or the IPEF. The IPEF is the U.S. response to the U.S. withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership under Trump. TPP, if you recall, was an Obama-era trade agreement between the U.S. and 12 Pacific Rim countries, but was never popular among U.S. politicians and was a prime target for Trump. Once the U.S. with drew from the TPP, returning to it was a non-starter for whomever the next president would be because it was such a poison pill by then. So this IPEF agreement is an alternative, and it involves Australia, Brunei, India, Indonesia, South Korea, Malaysia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam in agreement with the U.S., But the IPEF doesn't lower tariffs imposed on goods that are imported from those partner countries to the U.S., and it does not give those partner countries greater access to the U.S. market than they had before. So why does it exist? Why? To counter China, of course. The IPEF is Biden's attempt at keeping the U.S. involved in the region as an economic presence and to challenge China, although I don't know how well that's going to go. Biden said, quote, we're here today for one simple purpose. The future of the 21st century economy is going to be largely written in the Indo-Pacific, our region. Oh, so the Indo-Pacific is America's backyard now? (laughs) Biden also said this framework should drive a race to the top. Drive a race to the top between who? Who's racing? Because China is already at the top economically, technologically, and you'd better believe they are militarily. But see, they don't have to have 800 military bases around the world to prove that. China seems to operate in a different way with countries it wants to develop relations with. They pay for what they want from countries and provide that country something that they need under comparatively reasonable terms. Comparatively, when you consider the highway robbery that IMF loans are and the imperialist diplomacy offered by the U.S. at the point of the U.S. military— Biden won't even lower tariffs on the goods that countries in the IPEF might want to import to the U.S. So how is this thing supposed to be a race to the top for any of the countries involved in a challenge to China in any way whatsoever? I'll tell you how. I bet you that what the U.S. is offering those other countries is some form of military aid. What else does this government have to offer? Because the citizens are broke because the U.S. government just sent all our money to Ukraine. I think Biden gave away the plot when he said that if China invaded or attacked Taiwan, that the U.S. would respond militarily, even after claiming that he still supports the one China policy in which Taiwan is a part of Chinese territory that is governed by China, Biden then turned around and said he'd respond to some mythical invasion of Taiwan by China with U.S. military force. From my perspective, the IPEF is an agreement between the U.S. and those other countries for them to be some type of launching pad or provide some type of support that the U.S. military needs to respond to that mythical Chinese invasion of its own territory, Taiwan. I could be wrong, but nothing about this IPEF looks or feels right. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content.
Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Nick Stender, a member of the Chicago Teachers Union and an activist with Reds in Ed. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And Nick, uh, here recently, the U.S. Senate uh, voted 86 to 11 to send $40 billion in uh, economic and military support to the government in Ukraine as the war in Ukraine continues, uh, yet another uh, indication of Washington's intent to drag out the war in Ukraine as long as possible. And what's wild is that, you know, originally Biden uh, asked for 33 billion, but, you know, Congress just threw in an extra 7 billion, I guess, just to round things off. And, you know, what's interesting about this, uh, Nick, is, (laughs) I mean, I think it kind of shows that uh, uh, how quickly the government can move to uh, put forth measures like this on issues that they consider priorities. But, you know, when it comes to priorities for the masses of people in this country, well, they don't move so fast, if at all. And you uh, recently published a piece about just this issue on Liberation News entitled U.S. Ruling Class Unites $40 billion for Ukraine War, Nothing for Workers. And so I'm just wondering how you're sort of analyzing this uh, uh, move uh, by the Senate and uh, what do you think it sort of evidences about uh, the reality of politics here in the U.S.? Well, I think it evidences, first off, that there is an intense hunger for war from the U.S. capitalist class, which, despite being divided into two different parties, really has similar interests. Those, of course, being protecting the interests of the military-industrial complex and making sure that the uh, weapons manufacturers and merchants of death get as much profit as they possibly can stomach um, while the workers and oppressed people of the country uh, continue to labor away without any sort of relief from either COVID or the economic crisis that is being caused by the um, war in Russia in no small part. So uh, for anybody who wants to go ahead and say that our government is dysfunctional and that's not working, I would uh, push back very strongly and say, on the contrary, it is working just fine for the people who it is designed to work for, which is the uh, ruling elite, the anti-democratic clique that rules over uh, the U.S. and uh, against us. Yeah, you know, particularly since we are uh, feeling uh, these the result of these policies of that $40 billion just sent to Ukraine on top of the hundreds of millions of other dollars that were sent before this $40 billion package was sent to Ukraine. You know, what do you think, Nick, the Biden administration has to say to the very workers uh, that the Democratic Party said had to vote for Biden in order to end the ravages of the Trump administration. I mean, what what could they possibly have to say to those folks now that, you know, working and poor people are literally seeing COVID relief money, affordable housing money, student loan debt cancellation money being sent to Ukraine, specifically, as Biden put it, for the pensions of the people suffering from the Ukraine war? 
Well, Jackie, I feel like there's really not very much to say. It's pretty indefensible. Um, and what Biden's messaging at the current moment is, is that uh, the economic hardships that the working class in the United States is facing is because of Putin's pike price hike, which, um, despite being a pretty poor attempt at alliteration, is also uh, just blatantly untrue. I mean, the Ukraine war is something that was entirely avoidable and uh, escalated every step of the way by the United States. Uh, the trap was laid. The stage was set um, at following the 2014 coup d'etat also in Ukraine, also financed and uh, orchestrated by the United States government. Um, and so for uh, the Biden administration to go ahead and say that we're fighting for democracy and our democracy and liberty is to be found in Ukraine. And this is the uh, first step in our fight back against the uh, China-Russia axis um, that is developing is pretty heinous and exposes the fact that they have no domestic program to really support the working people of this country. So they deflect and they deflect towards um, a, a war that didn't need to happen, but now is happening and are making the most out of it. So Biden is profiting very handsomely um, from the political uh, uh, benefits that he is accruing from the war. The United States empire is profiting from the diplomatic um, uh, consolidation of Europe around NATO. And the weapons manufacturers are profiting handsomely from the uh, hard-earned tax dollars of the United States uh, citizens going towards the pockets of the rich owners of these companies. Yeah, you're so right about the, the deflection. I mean, everything is always someone else's fault. I mean, here we have the wealthiest nation on earth, uh, the president, the most powerful individual on earth, but somehow uh, they can't manage these uh, uh, basic things like, I don't know, making enough formula for the babies in this country or, you know, uh, uh, having a truly living uh, wage and just so many things. And that's another uh, aspect of this that I think is relevant that you note in your piece, Nick, about how Congress, not that long ago, just a few months ago, had an opportunity to make um, a, a significant shift and expansion in social programs. Talking, of course, about the Build Back uh, a Better bill that was, uh, you know, supposed to fund universal uh, pre-K, subsidize child care, address uh, climate change, make the child tax credit uh, permanent and uh, other things. But I mean, there was this whole uh, internal struggle within the Democrats about it, mostly coming from the right wing of that party, you know, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and uh, folks like that. And Joe Manchin, you know, even after talking to uh, uh, Joe Biden, then went on Fox News uh, to say that he wasn't going to support the proposal no matter what, no matter how much they watered it down, he wasn't going to support it. Like a completely humiliating move that uh, for which there was no public um, outcry or condemnation or criticism from the the White House or from the Democrats in general. They just kept it pushing. I mean, you know, I remember Biden not long after that, he gave some uh, sort of uh, a national address and, you know, it made it seem like everything was still cool. But but this is, you know, yet another setback for an already suffering uh, working people in this country. And I mean, in truth, uh, I feel like this whole situation evidences a couple of things, Nick. I mean, I think I may have said this at the beginning is that obviously the U.S. is very much 
intent on fighting Russia down to the last Ukrainian um, out of an attempt to maintain the unipolar world order under U.S. control. And if doing that means that uh, people within this country go without the most basic things, well, then so be it. And I just feel like it's important to uh, sort of understand how, you know, endless war is not some accidental phenomenon. It's very purposeful and intentional effort for the spread of imperialism. If I could say something about Joe Manchin before touching on the imperialism point. Sure. Um, Joe Manchin rejected the calls for the Build Back Better plan, which would have provided things like, uh, well, addressing climate change, funding universal pre-K, um, making the t- child tax credit permanent. He opposed all of these issues on what he said a philosophical basis. Joe Manchin said that he was philosophically opposed to these social spending programs. Well, his recent passage of this massive um, spending bill for the military, um, which goes over hundreds of billions of dollars, but then in addition to this uh, like defense budget, also the $40 billion for Ukraine, signifies that Joe Manchin may be philosophically opposed to funding relief for the working class. But when it comes to death and destruction, he's philosophically supportive of that. So I think we should be very clear about uh, what these politicians stand for. Joe Manchin's also a perfect foil for the Democrats. They can uh, use him as a bully uh, or like play the role of a bully uh, and say, oh, you know, Joe Manchin can't do anything about him. Just going to throw our hands up and then not fight for it. Uh, Joe Manchin can be disciplined by the Democratic Party. He could have his funding revoked. They could primary him. They could take away his committee assignments. There's plenty of things the Democratic Party could do to discipline Joe Manchin and bring him into line. But they don't want to, because at the end of the day, Joe Manchin is doing the work for the Democratic Party of uh, sabotaging their own agenda so that they can say that they're actually for these things, while in reality being uh, against the social spending programs that would benefit the working class. Um, So that's Joe Manchin's role for the Democrats. He's actually very useful, this Trojan horse within the Democratic Party. Um, And then when it comes to imperialism, yes, I mean, the United States has spent 40 billion, uh, over 40 billion dollars on this war, including, as Jackie mentioned, the hundreds of millions of dollars that were allocated for the war prior to this massive escalation by the U.S. government. Uh, And of that 40 billion, 6 billion are set aside for the delivery of new weaponry, including the M777 howitzer, which is an extremely powerful weapon that shoots hundreds of miles. Um, It's it's a serious piece of weaponry. Um, The uh, 8.7 billion are to replenish U.S. weapon stocks that have already been sent to Ukraine, including um, Excalibur, Howitzer, uh, artillery, GPS-guided um, um, artillery shells, which are also very expensive and cost tens of thousands of dollars per round. Um, the $3.9 billion for uh, redeploying U.S. forces near Ukraine to put even more pressure on Russia and to make the uh, eastern flank of NATO even more militarized. And then of the remainder, roughly $20 billion, give or take a couple of billion, is to make sure that Ukraine's government doesn't collapse tomorrow. So this whole war is basically run from Washington, D.C. Ukraine does not have the um, indigenous weapons uh, industry to replenish the stocks that are being depleted at a very rapid rate. Uh, Ukraine is actually using losing the war very decisively. I mean, it, In the U.S. media, you would uh, read the exact opposite, that there are massive reverses by uh, the Russian forces. Um, If you read the Washington Post and the neocons at the Institute for the Study of War, you would read that 
um, oh, these uh, Russian forces attempting to cross this river, the Seversky Donets were attacked and destroyed, um, and Ukraine is fighting back so valiantly. Well, in reality, Ukraine has lost over 30,000 armored vehicles over the course of the war, over 200 airplanes, uh, over 200 helicopters, a uh, very large number of artillery. Uh, there's no way for Ukraine to win this war. And Zelensky has also, the Ukrainian president, has recently said that 100 Ukrainians are dying a day. If Zelensky is saying you could, that, you can better be sure that that is a massive undercount of uh, the real carnage of the war um, and the fact that things are not going well for Ukraine. So as the war continues to deteriorate, there will be an even intenser call for more weapons shipments to Ukraine to prop up this uh, regime that is really a total puppet of the United States and can't survive on its own two feet. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and I think the, the part of this entire scenario that just makes it even worse, as if it could be worse, but it certainly can be, is that German, uh, French, and Italian suggestions of a ceasefire have all been completely rejected, even, you know, angrily by uh, uh, the Kiev government, uh, obviously at the behest of the United States government. And Ukrainian officials say that Russia is not ready for serious peace talks, and Ukraine is actually demanding that the only way they will uh, abide any kind of negotiation is the restoration of all territory lost to Russia since 1991, when it gained independence from the Soviet Union. But that would include the Donbas region and Crimea, and the, that, those are the two regions that literally voted after the 2014 coup to be independent of Ukraine itself. I mean, I just see uh, no end, uh, clearly, to this uh, a proxy war in Russia. But then again, you know, Nick, there isn't supposed to be an end to it other than the so-called weakening of Russia that Lloyd Austin has said is the goal. Uh, so th there is no end in sight for this war, which means there is no uh, improvement for uh, working class and poor people in this country in regard to our economic outlook, is there? Definitely not. Uh, there are going to have to be more and more weapons shipments to Ukraine, more money uh, taken out of our pockets to finance this war that does, again, not need to happen at all and is completely unwinnable for Ukraine. The United States wants Ukraine to fight and die to the last Ukrainian. The more blood that is shed for this cause, the more propaganda, uh, the more grist for the propaganda mills of the West so that they can uh, go on and on about the brutality of the so-called brutality of the Russian invasion when, um, of course, there is no reporting on the uh, missiles fired from Ukrainian territory into Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, hitting civilian infrastructure and so forth. Or there's no mention of the fact that uh, Ukrainians are being used as human shields by fighters like the Azov Battalion in the dungeons of the Azov-style steelworks. Uh, there's no mention of the fact that the Ukrainian uh, command posts are being set up in schools and other areas across the country that are, of course, a violation of uh, the laws of war. There's uh, no mention of the atrocities being carried out against uh, Russian soldiers taken captive by the uh, Ukrainians as well. So um, this bloodshed is very, very advantageous for the propagandists. It's advantageous for the empire because, as you said, they don't want this to end. They want the uh, wheel to keep on turning for the military industrial complex. And they want Russia to be bled dry so that they can eventually make the uh, argument that 
the Russian government must be overthrown and there must be regime change within Russia. The ultimate goal of the United States is to uh, coup the Russian government and to dismember Russia because it is too big of a competitor for the U.S. imperialists to stomach. Yeah, and really, it's funny because I feel like the the longer um, the Ukraine war goes on, Nick, the more uh, honest the U.S. government is about its uh, intentions there. And I mean, you know, uh, not that long ago, uh, President Biden just straight up said that um, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin has to go as, you know, president of of, uh, Russia. And so, you know, this is not something that, you know, the U.S., for instance, would accept uh, from someone else. But the fact of this as a regime change operation, fundamentally, using Ukraine uh, as a proxy, which in in reality, and we've been pointing this out on the show uh, from the start of the, the conflict, actually, is that really... I mean, what we're looking at is is also the result of uh, decades of U.S. policy going back to at least uh, from the beginning of NATO in, in 1949, which was never a, a, a defensive institution, but was always a, a sort of a tool for U.S. imperialism and uh, wielded for uh, wielded by uh, the ruling class of the U.S. Uh, you know what I mean? And so, I mean, as things continue to move forward and uh, we see the support for war and the support for uh, the masses of people in this country and see that gap go wider and wider. I, I feel, Nick, that it, it, it presents an opportunity to really bring people's attention to these disparities and how they are negatively impacted by the U.S.-sponsored never-ending war machine. And uh, I feel like that that opportunity then um, creates uh, a chance to really uh, start to not only do political education, but to actually build a movement that's going to struggle for all of these things that the uh, the ruling class, Democrats and Republicans simply refuse uh, to give the struggling people of this country. And uh, honestly, I see that as really uh, the only way uh, around this. Precisely. We have to point out constantly to our people that our interests are in direct and contradictory opposition to those of the ruling class in the United States and their political representatives. There can be no accommodation with the people who are running the United States. Uh, We absolutely must. We require a change in government. We require a state. We require a revolution in order to end this suffering and end the charade. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the wheat bans from India and what that will mean for global economies. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean and Jackie. 
Absolutely. And Dr. Desai, the government of India uh, recently announced a ban on wheat exports, uh, saying that uh, it was uh, uh, had some targets for record shipments this year, uh, which is happening amidst a serious uh, heat wave and with uh, prices rising domestically. And uh, honestly, I was hoping you could help us understand not only uh, sort of what was the, the deeper motivation of India to make this move, but what are some of the ripple effects outside the country? Yeah, sure. So, in terms of the immediate decision and uh, the sort of the the, the 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 surprise caused by the decision, it comes from the fact that for the last, I would say, five seven years, India has been ramping up its exports of wheat. And uh, th- this is this. You know, India is, I think, the second largest producer of wheat in the world. But broadly speaking, until now, it consumes most of the wheat itself. And this is not. Ne- it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact. If you think about the fact that there are a lot of people in India who are still heavily malnourished, India is, has some of the highest numbers of people in the world who are malnourished, and yet India is exporting grain. So this is a problem. But nevertheless, this right-wing government had started uh, in a major way to export wheat, and what's more, it was sort of you know advertising itself as you know part of the world's food security, while of course completely neglecting the food security of ordinary Indian people people, poor Indian people in particular, and so on. So, so that's the background. Now, what happened is that, as you know, the, uh, the recently the, uh, with, the, with the war in Ukraine, what has happened is that there has, of course, been an increase in the price, world price of wheat. Now, a lot of the operators in India, whether it is farmers or dealers or whoever, they, in, in view of the fact that they could expect the price of wheat to go up, they have been holding wheat back. So as a consequence, the Indian government, which regularly procures a very large amount of wheat, uh, anywhere between 25 and 50 percent, depending on how you count, to, dis- to either uh, to either store in order to uh, ensure India's food security or to distribute to poor people under a variety of welfare schemes, this procurement has been severely affected. And what's more, with the recent heat wave that we have all heard about, the, uh, the, uh, it is expected that the next harvest, the first harvest has just come in, but the next harvest is going to be much, much lower. So in view of that, the Indian government has placed a ban on exports. But also, let's remember, this is not a complete ban. India will still honor all confirmed contracts. So if you already have a contract, then your contract will be honored. What's more, and this is not this is a good thing, I'm not criticizing this, India has also said, because neighboring Pakistan has been affected, Bangladesh has recently been affected by floods, so it is also saying, and, and you know, uh, Sri Lanka is facing food shortages, so it has also said that for uh, neighboring countries and, and other countries who may be in distress, India will decide on a case-by-case basis to make exports. So remember, we're looking at a very complex situation. Hunger and malnutrition in India, on the one hand, and the expectations it has aroused and the commitments it has made until recently abroad. So this is the complexity of the situation.
And, you know, Dr. Desai, how much of the problem with the uh, export uh, or the the issue with the export, how much of that is the fact that so much of it seemed to have been unregulated, according, or at least according to Commerce Secretary uh, Subramaniam, who told reporters in New Delhi that we don't want wheat trade to happen in an unregulated manner, manner or hoarding to happen. So how much of this was uh, 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 as, as a result of uh, corruption and just the lack of regulation that allowed, you know, people to hoard supplies and may have contributed to uh, the the uh, famine issues or the hunger issues even inside India. Absolutely. So now here's the thing. There are, I would say that we would have to divide that up into two categories of people. One are various dealers, maybe even some government bureaucrats, etc. And there's no doubt that they are probably engaging in various sorts of corrupt activities, holding, etc. On the other hand, there are farmers. Now, as you know, in the last two years, throughout the pandemic, there was a massive farmers movement in India. And one of their key demands was an acceptable level of minimum support price for their wheat. And uh, so I would say that uh, the Indian government, it does practice some sort of minimum support price. But I think in view of the fact that the prices of wheat were going up, etc., the Indian government could have made some sort of uh, 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 some sort of gesture to say, okay, we will match the international price of food uh, or, you know, to co- come close to it in order to encourage farmers to sell their grain, etc. So I would say that uh, there is there is a fair amount of regulation, except that it also operates side by side with an excessive toleration for uh, corruption, etc., because, of course, these are cronies of the government. And on the other hand, a neglect of the need for farmers. Because remember this, you know, let, let me dial back a little bit and say that, you know, China, of course, all the countries in the world are sort of, you know, criticizing India, saying, oh, India should be uh, not be doing this and so on. But, you know, one of the things that has happened is that in a certain sense, what we are looking at is the result of decades during which country after country has been persuaded to neglect their own food security and produce things that are cash crops, whether it is flowers or shrimp or, or uh, coffee or what have you, for Western markets. So you go to poor countries, third world countries, which are quite capable, which are agriculturally quite fertile and and quite capable of producing a lot, they are to be persuaded not to produce their own food, but to produce cash crops. So this sort of thing has made all too many countries reliant on food imports, right? Now, India, thankfully, is not one of them. India, generally speaking, India is the largest producer of many, many crops. But of course, India is also a big country and and, and, a, and a large population. And so India, generally speaking, consumes most of its food and it needs to consume more of its own food. It does not need to export food. But in order to benefit from world high prices, the, anyway, the Indian government is allowing this. So China has said that India, India, China has supported India in its, you know, which if, if you can, if you think about the fact that India is and China relations are not so good and India is often sort of provoking China in various ways. This is a, a good gesture. 
And and the reason for that is China understands that at some level you have to secure your own food security. If the United States were having a, uh, a, a very, very bad harvest, the United States would do the same thing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, a little earlier, Dr. Desai, you noted um, the issue of wheat as it pertains to, you know, the war in Ukraine and uh, Russia and things like this. And and, uh, we've seen how that whole issue has, you know, uh, exacerbated a a global food crisis. And, you know, then you you talk about the need for India to consume its own food. Uh, You know, maybe this is an aside, but I just sort of wonder, how do you sort of situate this issue of uh, uh, sort of the, the the global food crisis with what we're seeing here from uh, uh, India. Now, I don't, uh, you know, I don't necessarily think it was like a driving factor or anything, but I do feel like that is sort of an overarching um, dynamic that uh, the world is facing that seems to be relevant here. No, I mean, so I mean, this is really interesting. So, of course, the war in Ukraine, uh, the war over Ukraine, rather, as I, I would like, I always like to say, uh, has exacerbated the food crisis. Uh, and the, if, if the United States wants the food crisis to end, if Western countries want the food crisis to end, they should be ending the war now by seizing to uh, by 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 seizing to seizing and desisting and constantly ramping up the temperature constantly supplying arms and essentially forcing ukraine to to get back to the negotiating table uh, to insist that to to recognize that russia's legitimate security needs need to be discussed and acknowledged and so on there is a very very simple path to ending this crisis the west is not only not taking it but as you've seen in recent headlines president biden is now expanding this. As you know, he's in the habit of making these these uh, outbursts of statements, you know, in which he sort of said something really outrageous, like Putin should, must be made to leave or whatever, which essentially implies that the United States is aiming for regime change in, in Russia, which is likely true, but it's, the U.S. just simply cannot do it. Similarly, the Biden administration is now saying that it's going to defend uh, Taiwan over China. So the Biden administration has no interest in um, promoting world peace and orderly address uh, or, uh, orderly ways of addressing the crises that the world faces. Okay, we, we face a climate crisis, which is, of course, a major contributor to the present world food crisis. We have other forms of mismanagement of the world's food supply. I don't know if you've seen this, but a lot of food grain actually goes to produce biofuel. This is essentially a way of trying to resolve the climate crisis on the backs of the world's hungry, right? So anyways, the the Biden administration has no interest in stopping the conflict because any resolution, whether it is of the climate crisis, whether it is of the food crisis, will require countries to sit down and negotiate in a spirit of cooperation, in a spirit of mutual trust and mutual respect. And all the Biden administration is doing is demonizing and vilifying all sorts of world leaders who, who are leaders of systemically important countries. This is not going to help at all. And I do wonder, Dr. Desai, in, in a strange way, do you see the Biden administration also capitalizing or at least trying to capitalize on uh, this issue with uh, wheat exports uh, out of India being uh, uh, regulated more heavily? Do you see the Biden administration 
somehow thinking that maybe this could be a, a, a benefit to American farmers, because I always feel as if a part of the uh, focus on the U.S. Uh, saying that we need to do something about uh, world hunger that this war in Ukraine is, is causing, that, of course, the U.S. has caused— uh, it is almost like a backhanded way to say, okay, this is another way for us to get U.S. farmers in on being, once again, the breadbasket of the world. And I don't think that's going to happen. Well, absolutely, because I think that the world's food, partly because of the neoliberal policies that have been pushed on many countries by successive uh, American and Western governments, the fact of the matter is that the, the, at the moment, um, the need for exports is much greater than what the United States and the European Union uh, can and, and Canada, for that matter, can satisfy, which is partly why, of course, Ukraine and Russia have become so systemically important countries like India, which should be, eat, you know, eat, consuming most of their own production, are, are brought onto the market, etc. So that's one thing. But I also wanted to respond to something else, Jackie, that you said, because I've been thinking along the same lines. I mean, you know, just as inflation, which has much wider causes, uh, is being blamed on the Russians, so the food crisis will be blamed on the Russians. And in this case, anybody else who essentially opposes the American line. So in this case, India is caught in the crosshairs as well. So it, it, it's a way of essentially blaming problems that Americans will experience as their prices of their food, their fuel, etc. go up. They can say, well, the Russians did it. It's the usual thing. The Russians seem to have done everything in the last little while, right? Well, you know, whether it is uh, getting President Trump elected or, or, or what have you. So it's, it's always a, so somewhere in every discourse you'll find uh, uh, the, the statement that the Russians did it. So this is what's, what's going on. And so it's an convenient for the uh, Biden administration to blame Russia for developments in which it is, in fact, the main cause or cause of these developments. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Desai, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the relationship between Elon Musk and Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by independent journalist Natalia Urban. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sean. And hello, Jackie. Great to be here today. Absolutely. And uh, Natalia, here recently, uh, Elon Musk, of course, a billionaire uh, American of uh, South African 
Extraction, uh, was recently in Brazil to meet with that country's president, Jair Bolsonaro. And I think it's interesting that this is um, happening, you know, in an election year in Brazil. And also not long after Musk was uh, accused of a sexual harassment by a worker at his SpaceX company. But uh, I believe that's precisely why Musk was in Brazil to uh, uh, discuss and to uh, sort of get into this launch of a project called Starlink, which is a satellite network of the same SpaceX company. And so I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, knowing what we know about Elon Musk and, you know, the fact that his uh, electronics and self-driving cars and things like that need particular materials. I mean, what is really happening uh, uh, with uh, Elon Musk in Brazil? And, and what is uh, you, what do you think the Bolsonaro government is really after here? Um, first of all, the whole story is very sketchy because Musk uh, has been uh, was chased by the Brazilian government since last year when the Minister of Communications, who is only on the, his position now because he's the son-in-law of a great magnet of telecommunications in Brazil, who is using uh, his network to support Bolsonaro. And uh, he went to the United States uh, to offer Musk a project, in a partnership, uh, which is something that is already um, um, uncommon because it's usually the other way, not the Brazilian government uh, or any government trying to chase the, the, the private sector for projects. Um, so they went to the United States and he was like, it was really, really creepy because he went in the middle of the evening, like tweeting that, oh, I'm here, I'm closing a partnership with Musk. And he was just like meeting with him. So uh, Musk finally went to Brazil, um, according to himself on Twitter. Uh, he closed up a project that will connect 19,000 schools in rural areas in the Amazon. And he will all with the internet and he, that he will also use his satellite systems to uh, monitoring uh, the deforestation of Amazon. But the really weird thing is Brazil already has a great system in place, a system that Bolsonaro has been underfunding since uh, the, the big uh, forestal fires of 2019, which made uh, um, the headlines internationally. But also Bolsonaro uh, fired the president of the institute who was monitoring the Amazon, saying that the person was lying. The institute was working with a political agenda against him about uh, the real numbers of the devastation of the Amazon, which, according Bolsonaro, were uh, way uh, uh, exaggerated by the institute. Um, and now he wants to give to Musk the opportunity to uh, monitoring the Amazon by him and having, of course, someone that he considers an idol uh, on his side. So um, it's not just um, suspicious, but also very concerning, not just for the Brazilian uh, population, but internationally speaking, because we all need the Amazon there. Yeah, of course he would be, uh, you know, uh, a 
someone that he would look up to, Elon Musk, who, with his South African apartheid-era uh, family mind, um, you know, the, the issue of Elon Musk having the technological control over the largest forest reserve, the Amazon, in the world, everything in it, including the soil, is a big enough problem. But then there are also the issues that, that persist with uh, Musk constantly going after Bolivian reserves of lithium, which are used in the batteries that power his Tesla electric cars, but also uh, the nickel that is needed in the production of those electric cars are also uh, issues at the heart of health crises that uh, affect indigenous people. But has Musk or Bolsonaro or anybody in the uh, uh, Bolivian government uh, involved in these mining deals, have they said anything about addressing those issues, the health issues uh, that these mining ventures uh, are causing uh, among indigenous people? Um, the interesting thing about uh, the mining is that we have to remember that Bolsonaro, since his campaign, has been saying that he wants to legalize mining activities within indigenous lands in Brazil, which is something that the indigenous um, are fighting uh, viciously against it because they know it means um, imminent death because of contamination and also because of the violence of the miners and the mining companies against them. And now Musk um, has been in partnership with uh, Vali, which is a big, uh, Brazilian's biggest uh, mining company, to, uh, of course, mining the mining of nickel. And Vale um, is a company that already has a history of uh, environmental crimes. The most recent, we all know, and we all saw, it was the dam of Brumadinho in uh, Minas Gerais, which uh, killed hundreds of people and uh, contaminates the soil and destroy uh, not just a city, but also like in an indigenous community nearby. And now they are um, talking about um, Musk using, uh, having a contract with them. And in the long-term contract is to provide uh, um, Tesla vehicles with uh, 15% of expansion in the exportation of NICO. And that NICO uh, that they want to use um, on the cars, uh, the uh, electrical vehicles, uh, will be, according to Bloomberg, will be uh, in shortage uh, in, in, in the market in two years. So Musk already made a deal with them. Uh, the supply is not enough, obviously. And they are making a deal to expand the production of NICO. So this means that they will be looking for other sources and the other sources being in the Amazonian uh, soil. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier how um, the Brazilian government has been, you know, courting Elon Musk in the recent period, Natalia. And it was pretty wild to see that. I mean, they even uh, gave Musk uh, uh, like a Medal of Honor, basically, uh, for, because of all this. And, you know, this idea that um, this program or this project is going to somehow protect the Amazon. I mean, it's it's pretty 
transparent and it's pretty absurd, not only given what we know about Elon Musk, but I mean, given what we know about the Bolsonaro government and about how, you know, his presidency has been marked by uh, attacks on the environment, certainly by uh, racist attacks against indigenous people and and things like this. And so uh, what I'm really wondering within that context, Natalia, is, you know, how do you see this um, sort of impacting the internal politics in Brazil, because like I mentioned a little earlier, this is an election year in the country. Uh, Bolsonaro is uh, staring down the prospect of facing off against a popular former president in Lula da Silva. And, and, and I'm just curious how this piece is sort of situated uh, amongst all of that. What Bolsonaro is doing, he's giving the continuation of what the military dictatorship tried in the 70s, military dictatorship that has been instated in Brazil with the support of the United States, because I need to like, uh, mention, is that the Amazon, um, it only serves to give people profit. And if it's not profitable um, in a way of like, who is making money out of the Amazon is useless. So they need to use what they have, the resource of Amazon to make um, a, a, a small uh, elite even richer. And we know how much Elon Musk loves to be richer. And um, what Bolsonaro is trying to do is um, the economy in Brazil is pretty bad. Brazil is going through um, a recession. Um, it was the country that uh, has been suffering with inflation. And so, of course, the Brazilian elite was is unhappy with Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro used the opportunity to meet with Musk and not uh, and to court the national elite, showing, look, this guy, the world's uh, richest guy, is with me. So if you vote for me, if you support my reelection, you will have uh, Elon Musk um, making business with you as well. That's why the meeting with Musk uh, had the presence of uh, businessmen from several sectors, from pharmaceutical companies, from like uh, cyber intelligence, uh, telecommunications, uh, builders, all the sectors you can imagine, they were there because Bolsonaro um, knows that he needs the elite supporting him because there is no third way in Brazil. The, all the candidates from the third way are very weak. So the elite has two options, support someone like Bolsonaro or support Lula. And we know that the elite doesn't want to support Lula. So... Um, Bolsonaro needs them not just like voting for him, but also like investing on his campaign as well. So having Elon Musk there is a great sign for them because it means not just that they will have uh, more business with Musk, but they will have the opportunity to actually start uh, a new ventures abroad as well. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that uh, Bolsonaro is uh, doing so badly in the polls, I think, is the key to this bizarre meeting with Elon Musk. Uh, and even uh, Musk's bid to uh, purchase Twitter was a part of Bolsonaro's uh, comments. And it seems like his his strategy to boost his 
flailing campaign against Lula, who, you know, he trails in all polls to. So what was Bolsonaro's uh, uh, perspective on uh, how, you know, Musk buying Twitter would benefit uh, him and uh, Brazil in general? Um, Bolsonaro said that uh, Elon Musk intent to purchase Twitter was a fresh of breath of hope. Um, he believes that Musk uh, um, in power of the social media will have uh, will will be beneficial for him and his supporters in terms of like freedom of speech because Bolsonaro um, and his gapnet uh, have been having problems with like Twitter removing posts or adding fake news marks or even banning uh, uh, the robots that he puts there. But um, we know that Bolsonaro's uh, main hallmarks on social media is the spreading of hate, is the spreading of fake news. Um, the pandemic was a, a symbol of it. Uh, but now with the campaign, uh, it's restarting again. They are trying to like put Lula as someone that is like anti-Christian or Lula who is someone that because he said that um, he uh, it's it was in, incorrect for the police go to the favelas in Brazil and to kill young uh, black people um, wrong that Bolsonaro used uh, what Lula said to try to spread that Lula is against the police. Uh, so, like, he's been trying to use uh, s uh, Twitter to, like, um, not just, like, gathering more followers, but also like to spread uh, uh, misinformation about what Lula has been saying. And, uh, of course, having someone like Musk there uh, uh, will not will not support him per se on, on the things like post, uh, he will like boost his posts, but will support him in the order that he will be able to say whatever we, he wants, even though we know how problematic and uh, messed up Twitter is. But uh, it will also uh, give them a, a extra power of like uh, limiting more what uh, the left in Brazil is saying to counteract Bolsonaro's misinformation. So it is extremely dangerous. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, May 23rd, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to 
Give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can call us at 3 20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. You can also listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 30. 1390 a.m. in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour, of course, today, Jackie, uh, we've been talking about U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to Asia and the remarks he made uh, about the U.S.'s commitment to defend Taiwan against uh, an invasion, quote unquote, from China. Of course, you know, China can't invade Taiwan any more than the U.S. can invade Wisconsin. But even still, uh, during a press briefing uh, in Tokyo, and he was asked if the U.S. would be willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan, he said, quote, yes, it's a commitment we made. We agree with the one China policy. We signed on to it and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that that it can be taken by force, just taken by force is just not it's just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region and be another action similar to what happened in Ukraine. Now, that just that quote is interesting Mm -hmm. because he literally says we agree with the one China policy. We just have absolutely no intention of actually following it. Right. And so it's like he's sort of playing with uh, the spirit and letter uh, of the thing itself, basically, so the U.S. government can can do what it wants. Um, and uh, of course, this uh, got a negative response from uh, China's government. Uh, Yang Jiqi, who's the top diplomat in China, uh, just last week was saying, quote, if the U.S. side insists on playing the Taiwan card and goes further and further down the wrong road, it will certainly lead to a dangerous situation. Now, just to be clear, that was a week prior. But even still, this has been in the air. And there's a broader issue um, that I think is at hand here. Well, really, let me get to the meat of what I'm saying in terms of um, White House officials not long after that statement uh, said that, well, what Biden really meant was that uh, Washington would give military equipment to Taiwan, but they wouldn't send troops to China in the event of that. Right. So they had to kind of clean that up a a, a little bit. 
Um, but I think that the sort of subtext of this or sort of what's really hovering in the background, because if people have been paying attention from the beginning um, of the Ukraine war following Russia's invasion, the U.S. has sought to rope in China to the conflict in a number of ways, even at times when it just seemed completely ridiculous. Like, do you all remember when U.S. was basically like, trying to get China to tell Putin to chill. It was like the weirdest thing. It was like they wanted to somehow uh, have China like dissuade Russia from doing something. And it just, it just kind of didn't really make sense. But in reality, it just felt like a way to try to lay some culpability of uh, the war at uh, China's doorstep. And then there was an analysis I remember where uh, there were some people saying that China is actually uh, cooling its heels and biding its time uh, because it knows that, you know, Russia will collapse as a result of this war in Ukraine. And when that happens, their old pal China can come in and, and sweep up the crumbs. I mean, just all kinds of things. Right. And um, I was I was looking at this piece in uh, Politico that's titled Deadly Serious, U.S. Quietly Urging Taiwan to Follow Ukraine Playbook for Countering China. And uh, Aaron Freeberg, who's a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton, they quoted him saying, quote, there is no question that the perceived reality of the possibility, speaking of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, is greater than it was three months ago. And said, quote, it's not a trivial challenge for the Chinese, even as strong as they become. And CIA director Bill Burns said this month, quote, clearly the Chinese leadership is trying to look carefully about the lessons they should draw from Ukraine about their own ambitions in Taiwan. I don't think for a minute it's eroded uh, uh, Xi Jinping's determination over time to gain control over Taiwan, but I think it's something that's affecting their calculation about how and when they go about doing that. This is pretty incredible because the U.S. is using its proxy war in Ukraine uh, to trump up this idea about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which of course they've been doing, but the fact that they're discussing within the context of Ukraine is going to give it like legitimacy uh, uh, to, to, to the public who will be seeing this. And what this is really looking like to me is, is the U.S. trying to kill two birds with one stone. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually pretty impressive about how, you know, uh, uh, because like we've been saying, Washington was very aware of the potential uh, fallout um, from sort of swiping away Russia's olive branch and not uh, respecting or agreeing to their security concerns. They knew that the Ukraine war uh, could happen. And when it did, and the contradictions between some of the different imperialist powers lessened for the moment and sort of joined under the banner of U.S. Uh, uh, imperialism, China, they very strategically sort of put China on the back burner for a little bit. Right. They still talked about it. <laughs> right. They, they still talked about China. They still say, hey, you know, tell Putin to chill. Uh, uh, Y'all are just diabolically trying to whatever benefit from this some kind of way. But it's now that China is sort of now creeping into the conversation explicitly. And so what we're seeing then is the United States obviously um, doing this against the countries that it sees as its two greatest rivals. And so the fact that the U.S. government and its supporters, uh, these sort of, you know, ruling class 
uh, uh, voices and these officials like Bill Burns uh, of the CIA. And so what they're all trying to do is is legitimize it and to make it seem like one uh, like one struggle, if you will. And so in the same way that the U.S. is dealing with Ukraine, then it would also do the same in Taiwan and things like that. And so, you know, for me, Jackie, this is all just about the machinations of uh, U.S. imperialism. Yeah. And what we need to take note of is the fact that imperialism never loses sight of its goal. It never does. It has a long memory. It remembers history. It knows precisely what it's doing and what the uh, the implications are and what the consequences are. They lie to us about it, but they know what it is. You know what I mean? And so I just feel like we in, in our organizing, we have to, I think, reflect that kind of intensity and, and that kind of uh, uh, tenacity, because it's, it's kind of shrewd what the U.S. is um, attempting to do here. But like I say, to me, it looks like they're just trying to line up. The two uh, biggest enemies and trying to knock them both down. Exactly. And and if let's just say the worst happens and and some kind of conflagration uh, is is provoked in Taiwan, because that's what this language is for, because it sounds man, it sounds so much like what was coming out of the White House and the State Department in the weeks leading up to Russia responding to uh, uh, the, <laughs> the the U.S. and NATO and their military and their arms and their exercises in Ukraine. This is the exact same kind of language that they started floating before Biden started coming right out and saying, any day now, Putin is going to invade Ukraine any day now. So this this is a, a it, this is a part of U.S. imperialism's long game. This is not a Biden problem. This is not this isn't a Trump thing. This isn't a, this is a U.S. government, U.S. imperialism, the entire establishment, Republican, Democrat and independent. They are all in on this end game of weakening Russia, as Lloyd Austin said, which is the goal in Ukraine, which is I I. How how does a country, Sean, have a stated policy of weakening another country through military or any other means when that country has done not a doggone thing to you or anybody else? How how is that how has that escaped the purview of the U.S. left in its assessment of the Ukraine conflict? But then, you know, there is the fact that this idea of of china invading taiwan a a a country that is a part of china is governed by china hence the mention of the one china policy it literally says that taiwan is governed by china so that there are no there's no two chinas there's not mainland mainland china and china over there in taiwan nope one china so there is this this idea being floated around, Sean, by these people who are cooking up this uh, uh, mythical um, uh, a scenario of of what if China invaded Taiwan? Not something that China is actually thinking of doing, because why would they have to invade their own territory? But it provides the pretext for another involvement in that region. That is similar to what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine, because you think about it. Think about it now. Here, here Biden is. He's he's 
he's uh, 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 penned or, or started this uh, this IPF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, that really doesn't provide the countries in the Indo-Pacific any kind of benefits. But he makes a big deal of going on this tour. He's asked this particular question about China invading Taiwan on this tour, and his response is, yes, we will absolutely respond militarily. The State Department, the Defense Department has to clean that up. But I really do believe that this IPEF is just the, the, the infrastructure that the U.S. would need to provide some of that military aid. If it's not boots on the ground, then it's a place to launch some of these drone operations and to deliver these weapons to Taiwan, because you certainly can't go through any of the countries that China is trading with. Right. So this, you know, it it is it is shocking to me, I think. I'm not sure why, but it's shocking to me that the U.S. government would would use the same playbook that they've used in Ukraine so soon after they did it. I mean, usually they wait a couple decades before they, you know, trot out the same uh, uh, play that they use to overthrow some other country. But I, I think that's an, an, an indication, Sean, of the empire realizing that time is short for it. Right. But then I think I'm more shocked by the lack of what you pointed out, the 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 intensity with which we on the left have to call these issues out, make these connections and call out U.S. imperialism for what it is. It is deadly U.S. imperialism. And they are trying to the Biden administration in this instance is trying to create the same kind of scenario over Taiwan as they've done in Ukraine. And how much more absolutely insane and disastrous would that be for the rest of the world? But if I'm looking at the way the left has been responding to what the U.S. has done in Ukraine, I don't know what people are going to do if something kicks off in Taiwan. Are, are the same people going to be caping for, you, you know, the U.S. government now? I'm, I'm very confused about where the left is on, on this idea of imperialism right now, Sean. Well, I think the answer is yes, it would be. You feel me? And see, the thing of it is um, uh, what what we're calling the left in the United States. I mean, even even if, uh, you know, the politics, their politics, otherwise we may agree with, um, they're as vulnerable to propaganda as anybody. I mean, we're all vulnerable to it. You know what I mean? It's just uh, it's just and I think that on top of a fundamental misunderstanding of what imperialism even is, is a lot of what's uh, fueling this. You know what I mean? And, you know, you asked the question earlier in your comments about like, you know, why, why take such an aggressive stance? Basically, if you're the U.S., why take such an aggressive stance towards countries that haven't done anything to you and don't serve as any kind of uh, existential threat to you? And, you know, the, the answer is, is that when you don't have a reason, you manufacture one. You know what I mean? That that's what the uh, the the demonization of, of Vladimir Putin and and really of all things Russian. That's what that's really about. Which is not a new thing, by the way. I mean, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin has been demonized by uh, uh, the corporate-owned media here in the U.S. Literally from the time that he first came into office uh, some years ago. Even even during that early period when Putin was trying to strike something of an. Uh, uh, 
oh, what's the word I'm looking for? And uh, uh, an accommodationist, if you will, sort of stance with uh, the U.S. But that doesn't work. I mean, China tried the same thing at one point and, and it doesn't work. They, they, there's nothing that you can do. It just doesn't matter, actually, how nice you are to the United States, because ultimately, um, you know, imperialism has its eye on what it wants. And, you know, no amount of playing nice is really going to change that. You know what I mean? And so when we see this, you know, the demonization of Putin as an individual and all things Russian and just sort of uh, boiling everything dealing with Russia down to him and, and framing him as a madman, all those sorts of things. I mean, we see the same thing in in uh, uh, China with all these ridiculous stories about, you know, Chinese spies and, you know, all these sorts of things. It's just straight up racist, yellow peril way that uh, the U.S. discusses uh, uh, China to this day. It's part and parcel of that same thing, because, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has not done anything uh, to the U.S. government or to any of us. And so, you know, in truth, the only thing that really sort of justifies is not only the demonization, but the U.S. sort of self-selecting itself to be the police of the world and the quote unquote defenders of, uh, you know, the little guys like Ukraine and Taiwan and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? But I think from a historical standpoint, I think we should also see um, this this demonization as it pertains to, to Putin and Russia as really part and parcel of the U.S.'s orientation toward Russia and the Soviet Union over the last uh, several decades. I mean, you all have heard me say uh, numerous times about how, you know, NATO was organized basically as, um, you know, an imperialist uh, military club, if you will, uh, against the Soviet Union in case there was, you know, an, an open war with the Soviet Union. Of course, Soviet Union collapses in the early 90s and technically there's no reason for it to exist. And yet it still does to this day. Well, why? Because throughout all that time, you know, NATO is steadily expanding and, and creeping and encroaching more and more and more till it's basically on uh, Russia's doorstep. This is what we mean when we talk about encirclement and containment. And it actually doesn't matter that uh, the modern Russian Federation is a capitalist country and not a socialist like the Soviet Union. That, that actually just doesn't matter because in terms of um, Washington, what they're interested in is uh, uh, having a Russia that is acceptably uh, obeisant to the United States. And that is not what they have in uh, Vladimir Putin. You know what I mean? And so uh, as we see how it unfolds over uh, uh, the decades, we see all of these typical um, tactics and narratives and half-truths and outright lies deployed against not just the Soviet Union, not just Russia, not just China, but any country that uh, U.S. imperialism has within its sights. And so what I'm saying is that imperialism is very intentional about how it operates, how it moves, who it targets, how it targets, and they're more than willing to let all of us uh, uh, die as a result of them getting just what they want, which is the ongoing of the unipolar world under U.S. control. And, uh, you know, the idea of uh, a multipolar world is, is a nightmare for U.S. imperialism because that would, spend, that would spell the end of its hegemonic control. 
Uh, that won't happen on its own, of course. We will have to organize to help bring that about. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Me and Jackie Lukeman still rocking out here. Big shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat always holding us down. And uh, Jackie, I also wanted to uh, talk some today about Twitter's uh, basically misinformation policy, the new one. Uh, yeah, they, um, they, they published this policy, excuse me, on their blog uh, a few days ago. It's called Introducing Our Crisis Misinformation Policy. And so, you know, as you can imagine, they go about breaking it down, explaining blah, blah, blah. But what was interesting to me was the examples that they gave um, in terms of what is going to, you know, warrant a warning from Twitter that people will have to click through in order to get to whatever the thing is. So it says, and, and I'm reading this straight from the Twitter blog, it says some examples of tweets that we may add a warning notice to include false coverage or event reporting or information that mischaracterizes conditions on the ground as a conflict evolves, false allegations regarding use of force, incursions on territorial sovereignty or around the use of weapons, demonstrably false or misleading allegations of war crimes or mass atrocities against specific populations, and false information regarding international community response, sanctions, defensive actions, or humanitarian operations. And so, I don't know, to me, Jackie, this just feels like basically... Uh, Twitter announcing that, you know, it's going to double down basically on all uh, dissident or anti-war analysis or posts, uh, certainly as it concerns the, the war in Ukraine. But in truth, I feel like this is really being used as a kind of launching pad. And I think this is uh, likely something that we'll continue to see right? As, um, as time goes on. And, you know, these points, these four points, they're, they're pretty broad. And, you know, I suppose that you can't, I guess, uh, you know, elucidate every single solitary specific instance of what you're talking about. But I just find it interesting when they make it a note to, you know, talk about sanctions or international community response, defensive actions or humanitarian, because what that says to me is, <laughs> frankly, if you're at all critical of the Washington consensus or the line coming from the White House or the corporate owned media on anything, on any conflict, whether it's with Ukraine or otherwise, well, then you'll get the scarlet letter, which is precisely what this is. These warnings, the, the, the state media, little designation things on Twitter and that we see on Facebook as well. You know, they're, they're using quote unquote misinformation as a pretext to basically stigmatize and really demonize uh, not only, you know, state affiliate, still state affiliated media platforms, 
but to also stigmatize uh, uh, the perspectives and the narratives that come from not only those media platforms, but from people who may not even be associated with those platforms who have these um, same politics. And I feel like that's also evidenced in how they do that same Twitter, does that same state of feeling media designation for people's individual um, Twitter accounts. You know what I mean? And so it's just clear that, uh, first of all, it's clear that big tech is collaborating with the state. Uh, I'm not sure what else you uh, call this, but that's precisely what it is. You see big tech collaborating with the state and uh, in an in a effort to carry out this suppression and censorship campaign and then turn around and uh, let and try to make people think that they're actually being helped by this. But in truth, they're just poisoning the well, because, you know, when you when you do things like block RT and Sputnik in uh, the European Union, when you deplatform Radio Sputnik here in the U.S., when we see PayPal seizing the accounts of, you know, platforms like Consortium News and, and Mint Press, who, by the way, are not state-affiliated media platforms. They're just alternative media platforms with a, a, a dissident view. Um, I just think that it, it, it becomes very clear. Like, you can't really claim to be engaged in some, you know, noble crusade against misinformation when in truth you're actually robbing people of the ability to see the other side of this issue. And they're basically left to assume that everything they see, hear and consume from uh, the corporate owned media or the government is, you know, the gospel truth. And so this is what we mean when we talk about an information war. That doesn't just mean that, you know, we're being picked on or whatever as an alternative media outlet. It means that there is an entire um, uh, uh, network, if you will, or an entire ecosystem is what I mean to say, that is uh, set up to make sure that it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, for masses of people inside the United States to find any information on things outside of what uh, the U.S. ruling class would prefer. And the funny thing about that, Jackie, is that is precisely what the U.S. accuses other governments of doing. And it's funny because other, you know, governments, you know, I think like China, Cuba, I feel like the DPRK does this as well. They put restrictions on certain things, particularly in terms of the Internet, because they know about uh, Washington's efforts at uh, trying to sow internal dissent by uh, broadcasting their own propaganda and with their own materials and uh, things like this. So the U.S. is always accusing other countries of not having a free press, but uh, the quote unquote free press we have here in the United States is owned and operated by uh, the capitalist class. And, you know, the coverage therein is to their benefit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and and when you look at uh, their little policy, their little misinformation policy and the way Twitter describes it, you know, they say that Teams at Twitter have worked to develop a crisis misinformation framework since last year. Who are those teams? <laughs> I want to know who those teams are made up of. Uh, is it is it the same uh, former employees of the CIA and, and you know, the other alphabet uh, intelligence agencies that are on the board of Twitter? Is that what the teams are made up of? Because that's what I kind of suspect is the case there. And then, you know, they talk about how down the line, as we expand our approach, 
I mean, how are they going to expand their approach from tagging stuff, content that is from foreign news outlets, any and all foreign news outlets that the U.S. doesn't like that day and and, you know, banning uh, people, deplatforming them. I mean, Twitter did save us from Donald Trump. Right. Remember? And when they deplatformed Trump, everything was supposed to be OK. So I don't know what we need all this expanded approach to misinformation for. But now they're talking about we will enforce around other emergent global crises informed by the United Nations Interagency Standing Committee, Emergency Response Framework and other global humanitarian frameworks. I mean, who is making that's the key question for me. In, in regard to this Twitter uh, and their little misinformation policy, who is making these decisions? Because we see, Sean, who is being impacted by the decisions, left voices, anti-racist voices, anti-imperialist voices. Uh, you know, we are the ones being impacted by this policy, not for spreading misinformation, mind you, but for for criticizing the State Department narrative. So since it's the people who are criticizing the State Department narrative who are being impacted by this policy, I think, Sean, that the team at Twitter is just a bunch of State Department officials, really. Yeah, and you know, I was looking at um, this uh, a recent article by a friend of the show, Margaret Kimberly, on uh, Black Agenda Report, and she was pointing out about how it's it's and at this juncture, it's liberals that are driving state censorship, and I think that that's an important thing uh, uh, to note. And it even and she. Uh, she talks about the the proper not. If people remember that the propaganda or not, uh, basically hit list uh, uh, type of thing. It was like this list of uh, verboten or whatever websites or like a warning for people around certain websites um, within the context of Trump and allegations of you know a Russian collusion and things like that. And interesting enough, uh, I think it was like a dozen. Um, websites that were on there and black agenda report was one of them. And I think actually the only black site, uh, that was on there. And she says, uh, within this, she notes that, uh, quote, liberals are the heart of the establishment. The prestigious schools, think tanks and high positions in corporate media are populated largely by Democrats. It is Democrats who have the power to declare certain thoughts unthinkable, make sure that inconvenient narratives do not see the light of day. It is liberals who are most closely aligned with the state and who most vigorously defend it. They are silent about a disinformation governance board and also went along completely with the plan to steal $40 billion in public money and send it to Ukraine or rather to defense contractors and Ukrainian oligarchs. And, you know, I think that that's so true. And I think it's important that we bear that in mind and not fall into this um, this narrative that, you know, only Republicans do bad things or only conservatives have uh, wrong ideas because it's true that it's the, the liberals that are driving this uh, latest uh, censorship campaign. But why are they doing that? They, they're doing that out of their class interests. And we have to be sure to always, always uh, remember that. 
You know what I mean? That's what all this is, is really about. It's about a capitalist system and a global imperialist system that is on the decline and is very aware of its decline and is trying desperately to uh, hold on to its place. And the wild thing about it is, is that liberals are basically rebranding censorship, Mm -hmm. basically saying, well, you know, it's actually good for these tech companies and whatever random people they have within them to tell you uh, what is true and untrue. Because we should be clear, that's what this is. Like, I don't know that these people at Twitter, you know, with their misinformation policy, I don't know that they're particularly qualified um, to discern what does and doesn't qualify as misinformation or truth and what have you. So what that really means, and we see the same thing on Facebook. So what that really means is you have these big tech companies setting themselves up as the gatekeepers of truth. Mm-hmm. And that is just not, uh, that is not acceptable in a democratic society. And so not only is censorship being rebranded as progressive, opposition to censorship is now being framed as like a right-wing thing because, you know, uh, Lauren Bobert or Marjorie Taylor Greene or somebody or some other, you know, right-wing person speaks out uh, uh, against it. And so it's just, you know, the, 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 the complete removal of all context along with Uh, you know, the pummeling of the consciousness of the masses of people in this country, I think is a big part of what brought us to this moment. But for those of us, uh, you know, who are, who are actually of the anti-imperialist sort of, you know, uh, wing, if you will, of politics, who are actually organizers, who actually want to build something uh, uh, to bring about change these are issues that are going to affect us over and above uh, any other sort of uh, political element, I would argue. And, uh, you know, uh, shout out to D.L. Sendero in our uh, in the Biden's Necessary chat. Uh, jokingly, uh, they, they said, quote, but didn't Twitter save the nation from Trump <laughs> after they shut down his statue? What kind of diminished uh, didn't all hail Twitter? And, you know, and that's funny. And, you know, it continues to strike me about how, you know, a sitting president orders an attack on the Capitol. Yeah. And the worst thing that happens to him is that he loses his Twitter. And after a certain period, that same president becomes completely rehabilitated Mm -hmm. um, and able to reenter politics as if he didn't do that and very well could be in place to make another run for power in a couple of years. And so I I just feel like this is why it's important for us to have like a real critical uh, analysis of all of this, Jackie, because I mean, these people that jive in us, like they're just straight up lying uh, to uh, the people of this country and really the world and telling us that it's for our benefit. But in reality, it's out of an attempt Uh, to keep us from knowing what's actually happening because they know that if Americans understood the full context of a lot of things, not just the Ukraine war, but if they understood the full context and had a deeper understanding about a lot of things, well, then the U.S. government would face a lot of opposition and it it just simply can't abide that, you know? But, you know, in in all of this, as as much as, you know, it, it is true that, you know, the worst that Trump got out of, you know, his seditious conspiracy leading the, the whole charge. The fact is that that responsibility, the fact that he 
got off with, you know, a literal slap on the wrist and getting his social media account uh, taken away. That lies at the feet of the Democrats. And I think that is where we go right back to the beginning of your comment, Sean, where you talk about how the liberals are behind this now. Mm -hmm. The liberals are manufacturing this consent for censorship and they're doing it to keep us, we anti-imperialist, we angry anti-imperialist leftists from pointing out the responsibility that the Democrats do play in this Orwellian landscape that we live in right now, because it's easy. The Republicans are the easy target. They are easy. They will never change their playbook. They will always do the same thing. I mean, you get a Republican who is going to stray from the narrative. You talk about a political party with a litmus test. Republicans have a litmus test for everything. Yeah. You you cannot be a Republican and be elected anywhere in this country unless you adhere to these 39 things. And at the top of the list right now, it's fealty to Donald Trump. There is an unmistakable litmus test for the Republican Party. But for the Democrats, eh. I don't know. You you know, you don't really have to be for abortion rights. That's okay. You know, you know, you don't really have to be for, you know, be anti-war. It's not not no big deal. So those of us who are calling out the hypocrisy of the Democrats and their culpability in all of this, not holding Trump accountable whatsoever, not holding any of the Republican uh, uh, elected officials who engaged in who abetted, aided and abetted the attack on the Capitol, they still kept their jobs. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I mean, so, you know, so we're being silenced because, yes, we're certainly challenging the establishment and the State Department talking points. but, But let's not forget that a lot of the times those talking points include things that Democrats have voted for. So. You know, we are up against not just, you know, this right wing kind of uh, uh, censorship, which is definitely very real. But we're also up against the growing liberal censor, uh, censorship that they're, you know, going right along with and not saying anything about what Twitter is doing in silencing left voices. Yeah. And, you know, what you're saying, Jackie, it drives home. Just how much of a lie it is that the Democratic Party is uh, this great protector of poor, working and oppressed people. Well, well, how can you say that? How can you pretend to be that? How can you um, ask people for their vote every two and four years or doing every election while actively supporting people who are against their interests? And so, you know, it's clear that there really are no principles there. There really are no, no standards there in terms of what that means. And you're absolutely correct as it pertains to the Republicans. They're, they're serious and they're consistent and they're assertive. And when, when you have those traits and you're armed with a reactionary program that would harm the masses of poor working and oppressed people, that makes you pretty dangerous. And of course, the Democrats, even though they tell us that the Republicans or at least our impression is that the Republicans are like their mortal enemies and all these sorts of things. In truth, what we see is that, you know, the Democrats, they don't really stand for anything. And it's just to me, it's not possible to sort of portray yourself 
as the protector and defender of poor working and oppressed people if you don't fight for the things that they need and for the things that they want, for the things that they're constantly, constantly saying that uh, uh, are their concerns, but are always burst off and saying, yeah, that's cool, but we got to keep this uh, uh, right winger out. So you just got to vote me in. I will not do any of those things you want me to. But hey, at least you can feel good about not having a Republican in the office. Right. And so this is the sick game that uh, uh, we've been put into for so long. Uh, a couple of more comments here in the Biden Necessary chat. Big Teal says it's not free press either when the capitalists have control over media. It's absolutely true. And Jam, though, says they hear us, though, and that's why they want to silence us. That's absolutely true. And that's something that I try to to bear in mind, because this incredible suppression campaign and censorship campaign would not be taking place if uh, Washington did not feel threatened by these narratives, right? If it didn't feel threatened, then it probably would like just not uh, acknowledge it at all. But when we see these obvious attempts at uh, attacking and stigmatizing and demonizing alternative platforms and voices, then it's clear that those things are a threat to the U.S. imperialist state. And as such, this should be the fuel that helps us to keep going in this work that we're doing, not only exposing the reality of imperialism, but organizing to destroy it. But we're going to take another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. And, you know, Jackie, Oxfam recently released a report titled Profiting from Pain, in which they note that during the coronavirus pandemic, one billionaire has been created every 30 hours. Every 30 hours, a new billionaire is created, has been created during the pandemic. Um, it notes that, uh, while 573 new billionaires were created since the pandemic began, uh, which like I say is approximately one every 30 hours. And there's an estimated 263 million people that are expected to quote crash into extreme poverty this year, which would be according to, uh, an analysis by Truthout, that will be a, a rate of 1 million people every 33 hours. A new billionaire every 30 hours, another person crashing, well, someone crashing into poverty every 33 hours. And I just want to note some of the key findings of this report. Uh, Today, 2,668 billionaires, 573 more than in 2020, own $12.7 trillion, an increase of 3.78 children. The world's 10 richest men own more wealth 
than the bottom 40% of humanity, which is 3.1 billion people. The richest 20 billionaires are worth more than the entire GDP of sub-Saharan Africa. A worker in the bottom 50% would have to work for 112 years to earn what someone in the top 1% gets in a single year. And high informality and overload due to care tasks have kept 4 million women in Latin America and the Caribbean out of the workforce. Half of working women of color in the U.S. earn less than $15 an hour. I mean, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) I mean, I don't know that you could paint much more of a stark picture in terms of the ravages of this capitalist system and how the coronavirus pandemic really just accelerated the contradictions that were already well in place. It's like it pressed fast forward on these contradictions. And so we see, uh, you know, all this, all this wealth that has cropped up during the pandemic, this pandemic profiteering. It has actually widened uh, the wealth gap. And it's just, uh, I don't know, it, it's so funny because it's like you know these things to be true, but it's like you see and you just have to say, shake your head because it's disgusting. It really, it, it, it turns your stomach to think about how we have these people who have more money and resources than they could use in several lifetimes. Meanwhile, broad swaths of the struggling peoples of the world, certainly in the global South or part of what we call the periphery, uh, don't even make a living wage super exploited. And as we see, I'm particularly struck by this idea that a worker, you know, in the bottom 50% would have to work for over a century to get what, you know, a, a one percenter would get. And see, you know, people look at you crazy when you say that billionaires shouldn't exist. But they shouldn't, right? Because, like I say, first of all, one person or even one group of people can't spend all that money. And this is what we mean when we talk about the capitalist class hoarding the wealth, right, of poor, working, and oppressed people. That's literally what it is. All of that money and those resources should and could be going to actually help people with the basic things that they need. And so we have to be clear that this reality, this situation, this is precisely what uh, the U.S. is seeking to protect. It's trying to protect the capitalist system. That's why imperialism operates the way that it does. That's why policy operates how it does both inside and outside the United States, regardless of what they say it's for. Ultimately, it's about protecting this capitalist class and their property and certainly finding ways to get them more money. This is why we have to remember that the ultimate goal of capitalism is not just to generate profit, but to maximize it at any cost. And we see that even with this relatively small number of, excuse me, billionaires or of wealthy people, it still just means such incredible exploitation for so many other people, both in the U.S. 
and across the globe. So when we see socialist countries getting attacked, when we see socialist movements getting attacked, when we see socialism being attacked, this is why. It's because the capitalists understand <clears throat> that socialism is what is going to spell the end of their reign of terror, frankly. And they've had a good run. But they don't want it to end. And believe you me, they're going to fight like hell to maintain that position. They're doing it right now. They do it every day. I'm always saying this ruling class, they're class conscious and well-organized and all of that. And so we have to reflect that level of organization if we're serious about defeating that class. But I think having a snapshot of things like in this Oxfam report is really important, Jackie, because it, it, it forces us to continue to confront just how dire the situation is under capitalism. And hopefully it kind of uh, reinvigorates our desire to bring about a completely new system. Has to, because I don't know how else people respond to knowing statistics like every 30 hours, there's approximately a new billionaire and has been since the pandemic. But in the same 33 hours, one million people were plunged into one one billionaire was created on the backs of a million people being plunged into into poverty. What does that mean? For that one billionaire to be created, a million people had to live in poverty. They had to be forced to live in poverty so that this billionaire could put billionaire next to their name and put all that money that should have gone to that million people into that one person's bank account. If the money from those billionaires, those just the new ones, were since the pandemic, uh, the 573 new ones since the pandemic went Two people, then just multiply that one million people by the amount of money that should have been fairly allocated to those people, to those workers. See, this is why countries, <laughs> this is why countries like Cuba are such a threat to the United States. This is why the U.S. government has their embassy. They don't call it an embassy. They call it an, a, a consulate of interest or some ridiculous thing sitting right there in Havana watching the policies of that criminal blockade against Cuba starve people. They know what they're doing, and they are literally laughing all the way to the bank. They literally do not care. And this is not just true in Cuba. This is true everywhere else in the world where there are suffering people, women, children, men, elders, suffering people living on less than dollars, a dollar or two a day. And there is some capitalist who is allowed to get a contract, which isn't just a contract. Imperialism just steals people's land. And mines for resources, steals people's resources and makes billions of dollars off of the resources, but keeps the people living in poverty. Yeah. And you know what's wild? I was just sitting here thinking that in the U.S., we're told that, you know, these issues of inflation and, and price hikes and all that, it's, it's due to Putin's price hike. Right. That's that's what Joe Biden called it. And it was funny. I was actually just looking at. um. This article from April in the Washington Post, it, it's a fact checker article 
on on uh, Biden saying that it's Putin's price hike. And, you know, they've got this rubric or whatever for how they, you know, do their fact checking, but they've decided to actually leave it unrated and to just let the, the readers decide, which which I think uh, uh, is interesting. But see, this is this is the propaganda that we're talking about. Right. When and even earlier in the show today, when we were um, talking with Nick Stender, we were talking about how the U.S. has to always deflect. And so when we see the gross inequalities in this country and how millions of people uh, are consistently going without the basic necessities of life, it's not because of the capitalist system. It's not because of this billionaire class of people who are hoarding the wealth. It's because of Vladimir Putin. And Americans are basically conditioned to not even question that because they've been fed a steady diet of Putin demonization for at least a decade at this point. You know what I mean? And so I just don't think people in the U.S. understand the extent to which we've been primed and groomed to just accept, you know, all these things uh, uh, that we're being told. And, 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 you know, and we should also be clear that even when we talk about having a, a dissident view or an alternative view, it's not, it's not a contrarian thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not like an edgy thing. It's important to point out this uh, uh, reality, number one, because we're being lied to constantly and also exposing this truth and helping people realize sort of the fuller idea of what's happening on a number of issues, I think is an important step in building this kind of a, a mass workers movement that we know is necessary to really change this country and uh, to change this uh, society. And so there always has to be some deflection play, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the, the curtain, you know, look over there, you know, your problems, the problems that you, a person, the United States face, it's everybody else's fault except ours. You know what I mean? And so this, this is sort of the subconscious, sometimes overt, sometimes covert, uh, uh, sort of way that consciousness is skewed in this country. And I just continue to be struck by the hypocrisy of it all. All this supposed concern over misinformation and propaganda and things like that. Meanwhile, Americans are the most propagandized people on this earth and don't even know it, you know? And so they're definitely, I think, Jackie, it is quite a bit of work to still be done on uh, uh, this front. But I mean, for me, the, the intensity of the attack really just reminds me of how important it is to continue to resist. Yeah, and, and I think what uh, what Jamtho said in the chat a little earlier is really important. They do hear us. Mm. That's why they censor us, right? They We are saying something that is a threat to their existence because if if a whole bunch of people catch on to what we're saying, Sean, and everybody in this— and everybody that the, the scales from everybody's eyes about this country, or at least a good 60 percent of the people who are exposed to what we're saying here uh, are, 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 you know, that they're convinced that, wait a minute, there's something there is a rot in this country. If they are con if, if a good 60 percent of folks are convinced of that, oh, my gosh, then we could have that revolution that we keep talking about in this country. And the powers that that be have to stop that from happening. And in any what what how, what do we say by any means necessary? Right. So we have to fight as hard 
as they are fighting to silence us to do the work to educate our people in order to defeat them. That's a fact. That's a fact. And, uh, you know, when you talk about that rot, it's important that folks understand that a part of that rot is making them feel okay with their own exploitation by basically telling them that it's not exploitation. Or if they do, saying that, well, yeah, you're being hurt, but by some other force somewhere outside. It's insane to suggest that Vladimir Putin or any world leader is uh, uh, responsible for the uh, price hikes and inflation, all these other economic issues here in the United States. It's the system that governs that suffering, and therefore it's that system that should be changed. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Steady C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.